Uh, lots of Australians will say they're religious. A very high percentage of Australians will say they're religious uh, or that they believe in God, but they're not necessarily Christian. Uh, some of them, of course, follow recognised religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Uh, then there are people who are sort of influenced by Eastern religions and they imagine God to be uh, some sort of impersonal force, maybe as part of nature rather than outside of nature. Perhaps they're into yoga or meditation. Or maybe they just sort of have this general sense that God is something like karma, where you get what you deserve or if you have positive thoughts about something then that will somehow come to you. Uh, Then you've got a whole range of people who uh, take on a new age spirituality. You see power in crystals and pyramids and all sorts of other strange things. Uh, Then you've got a whole bunch of people who will have this light wash of Christianity about them. Uh, There's angels and holy places and the mother of Jesus and statues and icons. There's superstition and rituals and saints. Uh, They trust in lucky prayers and tokens but there's not a whole lot of trust in God. There's Christmas and the baby Jesus but not much Easter and the crucified risen Jesus. And as as you think about all those sorts of spiritualities, uh, what have they got in common? Uh, I think the attraction of these sorts of things is that you get to keep God at a distance. You keep God small and undemanding. You keep your independence. You don't have to change or submit your life to anybody. Life continues as normal. You get to pick and choose uh, where religion gets a say in your life. That's what makes these sorts of things attractive. Uh, All of them have a domesticated God. A God who's been robbed of any power or influence. Now, but don't think that those of us who are Christian uh, are immune from this. <laughs> we also domesticate God. We reduce him uh, to an influence in those areas that we feel comfortable giving him influence in. Uh, we get to keep a firm hand on the direction of where our life is headed. Uh, we'll give him our Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll give him the spare change in our pockets. Uh, we're content to read our Bibles and mutter a quick prayer as we rush out the door to work and we feel like we've done our Christian duty and we measure our godliness according to the standards of those around us rather than according to the standards of a holy, perfect God. We're quite happy living the Christian life as long as it stays safe and comfortable and doesn't make too many demands on us as long as Jesus doesn't ask us for, say, to take up our cross and follow him. We pray but we don't really believe that we need God. He's an added extra. Mostly where we feel we're quite capable of looking after life ourselves. And so genuine, humble, dependent prayer only comes as a last resort when we're desperate rather than a way of living. We treat God lightly. We treat him as if he's insignificant or unimportant. But these chapters of 1 Samuel, from chapters 4 through to 7, they rebuke that sort of attitude. Uh, today we meet a God who is the complete opposite of that, a God who is, who is heavy, who is weighty, who is glorious and one not to be taken lightly. Uh, today we see the weight of the glory of God. 
and glory and heavy are words that run right through these chapters like a thread. Uh, The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. We saw it in the name of that baby that was born in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Do you remember his name? It kabod, which means no glory. Uh, And it comes from the same root as the word for heavy or weighty, which is kabed. In fact, in in, uh, chapter 4 verse 18, when Eli breaks his neck, Uh, falling off his chair, it's because he's old and heavy. Uh, He's kabed. We also see that in chapter 5, that God's hand is heavy against the Philistines. It's heavy or kabed against the Philistines, 5.6 and 5.11. And so part of what the glory of God means is connected to where it's sort of come from. It's to do with a weightiness about God. God is substantial and influential. His power and his influence are are awesome and immense. To recognise his glory is to respect him and take him seriously and not to take him lightly. That's something Israel needs to learn at the start of chapter 4. The Philistines are are threatening, they've attacked, 4,000 Israelites die at a place called Ebenezer. And so verse 3, the elders ask the question, why did the Lord bring us defeat today? And so they decide they're going to bring up the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, uh, kind of like a good luck charm. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, bring the Ark and they arrive in camp and the soldiers cheer as if they've already won. It seems as if they're trusting God, but they're really just trusting the Ark, this representation of God, rather than God himself. They, they they feel like there's power in the ark itself rather than the God it represents. And so they're treating God, uh, the God of weighty glory, lightly, insignificantly, and that's a mistake. Uh, The Philistines don't, though, do they? They hear the roars and rather than melting in fear, they steel themselves and determine they're going to fight even harder. And verse 10, they win. The ark is captured by the Philistines. Eli's two sons are killed, just like God promised. And that same day when Eli finds out the terrible news, first that his sons have died and secondly that the ark has been captured and the way it reads, it's almost like he's more worried about the ark being captured than that his sons have died. Uh, He falls off his chair in shock, breaks his neck and he too dies. And it's the same thing with Phineas's pregnant wife. She hears the news of her husband and his brother and her other-in-law, they die, but also that the, the ark has been captured. There are complications and as she's about to die, she gives birth to a son and calls him Ichabod, no glory. Because in verse 22 she says, the glory has departed from Israel, meaning the ark's been captured. Remember back to Exodus, the glory of the Lord was this cloud that represented God's presence and whenever Moses would enter the tabernacle where the ark was, this glory cloud would descend and God and Moses would meet. And so when the ark departs, the glory of God himself departs. But more than that, something else goes, the people's recognition of God and his glory. They've actually shrunk God down, they've domesticated him 
Uh, He fits in a box. This is a God in a box, literally. Uh, And it's no wonder that a God as small as that won't save anybody. But of course God won't stay that way. He won't stay small. He won't stay lightweight. It seems as if he's been defeated, but it's not because he is lacking in power. Remember back to chapter 2, it's about his sovereign judgement against Eli and his family. Uh, Just flip back a page, chapter 2 verse 31. Remember he promised Eli, the time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in, in my dwelling. You will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, in your family line there will never be an old man. And it all comes to pass, doesn't it? Eli sees the distress of uh, the death of his sons and then Eli himself dies. Uh, and there's distress in uh, God's dwelling. The ark is captured. And now as we move into chapter 5, beyond what Malcolm read for us, we see how God does good for Israel, despite the distress, just the way he promised. Chapter 5 is about him restoring his honour and how the weighty hand of his glory falls on the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines head back to Ashdod, one of their five cities, and they put the ark in the temple of their god, Dagon, verse 2. Must be a bit like a trophy cabinet. When you walk into you know, a school office and there's the trophy cabinet of all the things that they've won and that must be what it's like in Dagon's temple. There's all the, the gods that Dagon has defeated from the neighbouring uh, nations. Except things don't turn out that way. The next morning the statue of Dagon has fallen over on its face before the ark. Uh, it's symbolic of who bows before whom. Uh, the Philistines give their God a helping hand. Uh, there can't be much of a God if he needs to be helped up. Uh, but next morning the same thing happens again. Uh, this time both the hands and the head are broken off the statue of Dagon and they're scattered across the floor. The heavy hand of the true God breaks the powerless hands of Dagon. But not just Dagon. Verse 6, we see that the Lord's hand was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He brought devastation, he afflicted them with tumours. And so verse 8, the uh, the leaders moved the ark to the next city in uh, Philistia, to Gath. But the same thing happens there. And so verse 10, they send the ark to Ekron. And the people of Ekron say, gee, thanks very much, just what we wanted. You've brought the ark to kill us. And the Lord's hand was heavy upon them as well and death filled the city. Now, one city with death and tumours, you could say, okay, uh, you could understand that. Two cities, well, that's bad luck. But three, uh, it's fairly obvious, isn't it? God is punishing them. So they call the leaders together and decide to get rid of the ark. And similarly, to confirm that this really was God who was behind the tragedies, they set up an experiment. So we move into chapter 6, have a look at it with me. Uh, they put the ark on top of a brand new cart and then they yoke up two cows uh, who uh, have just given birth to calves. Uh, They pen the calves up and set the cows free to tow the cart. Now by nature, uh, milking cows won't leave their calves but these cows straight away, they head for Israel, they stick to the road, they don't turn to the left or the right. 
completely going against nature. This is not coincidence. God is at work here. Uh, The ark crosses the border and it stops by a large rock in a Jewish city or village of Beth Shemesh. The Israelites rejoice that the ark's been returned. They smash the cart, they build a fire, they sacrifice the cows on it as an offering to God and then they put the ark on a rock. It seems as if the glory has returned and that now the people will treat God seriously. But once again, we learn the lesson that God and his glory is heavy. It's consequential. You can't treat God lightly. Verse 19, we see that 70 men die after they look into the ark. Now, we don't know what they were doing looking into the ark, but it makes you wonder. I wonder if the Philistines pinched anything out of it. Is that what they're thinking? Are they thinking, gee, I wonder what's inside? But whatever it is, why did 70 people do it? Why did they do it at all? These people who'd rejoiced at the ark are now mourning that 70 have died. And they rightly ask, verse 20, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? It's a great question to ask, isn't it? Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Are they beginning to grasp the weight of God? They thought it was a light, insignificant thing to peer inside the ark. But this ark represents God who is holy and separate. Uh, He can't be easily approached by sinful people. It is a weighty, significant thing to have God among you. His holiness is white hot and dangerous. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Dagon can't stand, the Philistines can't stand, Israel can't stand. Who can stand? Well, we'll come back to the answer in a moment. Israel thought their greatest danger was the Philistines, but perhaps their greatest danger actually comes from God himself. Their next question after who can stand in the presence of the Lord is, well, where can we send the ark? Who can we pass this hot potato onto before it does any more damage? It would be funny if it wasn't so serious. They find some unsuspecting targets in a neighbouring town of Kiriath-Jerim. At the start of chapter 7, they come and take the ark and they set it up in a guy called Abinadab's house. And at least these guys have the sense to consecrate Eleazar, his son, to guard uh, the ark. Probably it's more about guarding people from the ark than it is guarding the ark from people. And verse 2 tells us that that's where the ark stays for the next 20 years. Now that's an interesting detail, isn't it? The next 20 years. We don't know anything else about what happened in those 20 years. We don't know whether they were good or bad, whether the Philistines kept attacking or whether there was a peace. But after 20 years, verse 2 says, the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Maybe that's how long it took them to take God seriously. 20 years to give his glory the weight, the significance it deserved. Maybe it took them 20 years to stop being angry at God for killing the 70 or for Israel being defeated and to begin to turn away from God being to blame and themselves 
and to start looking at themselves. Uh, We're proud creatures, aren't we, when things go wrong? Uh, There's an argument, there's a relationship breakdown, there's a disaster of some sort and our first reaction is to look at who else we can blame. Uh, to defend our own reputation and minimise our own part in the problem. But then, we, in the cold, hard light of day, we start to cool down and sometimes it takes a little longer than the next day, but we begin to think a little more clearly and to look in the mirror and recognise the fault that we've, uh, we're at and that maybe we've been too hasty to cast all the blame on the other person. And maybe it takes a week if you're particularly slow. But for Israel, it seems like it took 20 years to be humbled. 20 years for the attitude to change from rejoicing and curiosity and flippantly taking God lightly to a serious mourning and seeking after him. Have you got people who've been turning away from God for 20 years or more? I know many of you do have family uh, for whom you've been praying for more than 20 years and they haven't been humbled to repentance yet. But don't give up. Uh, For Israel here it was 20 years. For your spouse or children or neighbour or friend maybe it'll be 25 or 30. But God is hearing your prayers. God is at work. He wants all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth And he's doing it according to his timetable, so keep praying. And you'd do worse than to follow Samuel's advice uh, that he gives to Israel in terms of what you could pray. The people are mourning, they're seeking after God, but Samuel wants them to realise there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is what you feel when you're sorry for yourself. Remorse is what you feel when you've been caught or you don't like the situation that you're in. But repentance is something different. Repentance moves beyond remorse to to actually want to make amends. Repentance is actually about changing direction. And so Samuel says to them in verse 3 of chapter 7, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only and he'll deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Turn away from the foreign gods and turn to the true God. No more half-heartedness, no flip-flopping from one to the other, no covering your bets by having one of each all along the shelf. And verse 6 of chapter 7, the people listen. They fast, they confess their sin, they're humbled before the holy God. And so God makes good on his promise, just as Samuel said. Uh, Verse 7, the Philistines hear about the gathering and they decide it's a good place for a battle. The Israelites are afraid. They ask Samuel to keep praying. Samuel offers a lamb as a sacrifice. And verse 10, as he's doing it, the Israelites attack. But reading from verse 10, that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Samuel follows along and he sets up a stone as a memorial and he calls it 
Abednezer, Ebenezer, and it means rock of help because he says, thus has the Lord helped us. Do you remember Ebenezer? It was the name of the place where Israel had been defeated and the ark had been captured so many years before where it had seemed like God had been defeated. But now Ebenezer is going to be remembered instead as a place of God's victory where he's helped his people, uh, where the weight of his glory is seen. Remember we focused on Hannah's prayer last week? Well, it turns out just the way Hannah had prayed. Back in chapter 2 she said, My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. The rock of help. The Ebenezer for his people. And that lesson that Hannah had learned in her little individual situation proved true for Israel as well. Who's the one that God helps? Hannah had said that it was God who raises the humble and fills the hungry and raises the poor. And it actually taken Israel more than 20 years to learn that humility. But they do learn and they do turn back to God. And so we find out the answer to that question of who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God. Unholy, sinful people who humbly mourn their sin and seek after God. They're the ones who can stand in his presence those who turn and confess their sin and commit to serve him only. They're the ones who can stand in the presence of the Holy Lord. They're the ones whose sin is covered by an offering, a lamb that dies so that sinners don't have to. Because it's never on the basis of our own holiness that we can approach a holy God like this, no matter how repentant or humble we are. And that lamb and thousands of other lambs that followed were adequate. They may do as a temporary fix. God overlooked the sin committed on the basis of the faith that offered those lambs. Uh, They may do until the true lamb arrives, the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world, Uh, the perfect sacrifice who perfectly satisfies the law and who God joined uh, to us that we too could be set free. John 1.14 describes Jesus as the word who became flesh and who tabernacled among us and then he adds, and we have seen his glory. We've seen the glory of the one and only God. And Jesus bore in his own body the weight, the heaviness of God's heavy hand for our sin. Jesus was crushed by the weight of God's glory so that we didn't have to be crushed. Jesus is both the means by which we can approach a holy God and the visible glory of that God, the one who communicates him to us. And so we need never settle for this light wash of Christianity. We need never settle for a small God, an uninvolved, distant, impotent, part-time God. We need never settle for a magic prayer or a lucky charm or a holy place or an hour a week because we have Jesus. 
We have Jesus, the Lord of all, the victor over sin and death and Satan. We have Jesus, the reigning, living King of the universe, the firstborn over all creation through whom all things were made. He's redeemed all things. All things find their goal and their target and their fulfilment in him and everything, every knee will bow before him. Israel had the ark but we have Jesus and when you see Jesus, when you see his glory, then you can say with the Apostle Paul, we don't preach ourselves but we preach Jesus Christ as Lord For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have Jesus, so we don't need to treat God lightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you that we don't have to imagine what you are like. Uh, You've given us your word, but more than that, you've given us your living word, your son, the Lord Jesus, the glory of the invisible God. We thank you that we can see him and we can know you. Who can stand in the presence of the holy God? Those who are in Jesus those who have been made right through him. We thank you that we can approach you, that we can know you, we can pray to you because of him and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.